0: Did you know that the first female self-made millionaire in the U.S. was a black woman? Madam C.J. Walker was the first child in her family to be born free in 1867 Delta, Louisiana. She made her millions by developing, manufacturing, and selling beauty and hair care products for African-Americans. She was also well-known for her great philanthropic works. Welcome to the the Lore of the South. Hey y'all, welcome back to Lore of the South with me, your host Kelly Cruz. As y'all can probably tell by the sound of my voice, I have been sick. I have had the bronchitis and excuse my sniffles. It's been rough, y'all. I'm like, I'm still short of breath and sound like holy hell, but we're gonna get this episode out to y'all. And I know I missed the end of Black History Month, and we're in March, which is Women's History Month, so today's story will cover both of those, which I will share with y'all shortly. But first, I was thinking about introducing a new segment, maybe a current events kind of thing, or strange happenings, or a discovery of historical significance. What do y'all think? If you'd enjoy a bit more extra content with every episode, let me know. Here, I'll, um, I'll give y'all an example of what I mean. This comes from Live Science. The world's oldest pet cemetery was discovered in March of 2021, when archaeologists in Egypt found the mummies of 536 well-cared for pets, including cats, dogs, monkeys, a falcon, and even a fox. Many of the pets were lovingly wrapped in fabrics or woven mats, Many were also interred with food and valuables to help them on their way to the afterlife. Something like that. What do y'all think? Would that be something that interests y'all? So, for this first story that I came across, was kind of by accident. And when I started looking into it more, it really started to tick me off. It's the sad, sad story of Delia Green. She was a 14-year-old kid who was brutally murdered, and her death inspired at least 28 songs to be written about her, all of which did not cast her in a glowing light. Singer-songwriters such as Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash had hits out of the tall tales made up about young Delia. I'll post links to the songs so that y'all can hear what I mean when I say these men had awful things to say about a 14-year-old girl that they had never met. Delia Green was born sometime in 1886 in post-Civil War Savannah. According to sources, she had begun seeing a young man by the name of Moses, Mose Houston. The pair had been seen together dating for several months before the incident occurred on Christmas Eve 1900. Delia was what had been called a scrub girl or a maid of all works in the home of Willie and Emma West whose home was located in Yamacraw. Mose came by the home to visit with Delia and began to tease her and call her his little wife and other things that alluded to the pair having had an intimate relationship. Dilia became embarrassed and called Moses Houston an SOB and refuted his claims of how well he knew her. This incensed Houston. He yelled in Delia's face that he had had her as many times as he had fingers and toes, he then pulled a pistol and shot Delia in the groin. Delia lingered overnight in the home of her mother under her care, and then Delia passed away from her injuries on Christmas Day. Mose was tried a year later for the crime. He showed up to court wearing short pants to amplify his youthful parents, which the Savannah Morning News reported on. They also made sure to let the readers know that Houston appeared to be a cheerful mulatto boy who was of above-average intelligence for his race. Yeah, I'll just let that sink in for y'all for a moment there. Both of the Wests testified that the murder had happened unprovoked other than a few crosswords between the two. Houston claimed the shooting was an accident, that yes, he'd pulled the gun but hadn't intended on shooting Delia, Mose claimed that he and another boy were scuffling for the gun, and that's when it went off accidentally and hit poor Delia. The West denied all of this. Judge Seabrook chose to be lenient on Houston, saying that, I performed this duty with some pain and reluctance. I hate to condemn someone of your youth and intelligence to a lifetime of imprisonment. Moses Houston served 12 years of his life sentence. Delia was buried in an unmarked grave in the Old Slave Section or Stranger's Burial Ground of Laurel Grove Cemetery, South. Houston went on to live a life of crime and was believed to be killed in New York City sometime in 1927. Thanks to Killer Blues, Inc., a nonprofit that has dedicated its time and money to placing headstones for the unmarked grave to some of Blues' founders, who died too poor to afford markers. In the spring of 2020, a marker was placed in Delia's honor. The girl whose murder sparked the creation of nearly 30 songs about how wrong she'd done her man. Finally, people can know that she was only a 14-year-old girl, not even close to being old enough to be a heartbreaker that those songs made her out to be. Not that being a heartbreaker means you should be shot in the bits and left to die, either. So that was the story of Delia Green, The story that royally ticked me off when I read it. Hopefully, someday victims won't be viewed as the guilty parties and will actually receive justice for crimes done to them. Now on with the main show. Episode 38, Queen Bess, the Aviatrix. Elizabeth Coleman was born determined. She was born January 26, 1892, in Atlanta, Texas. She was the 10th of 13 children born to her sharecropper parents. Her mother worked the land and would clean houses for people in town to help support the family. Her father was both of African-American and Cherokee descent and worked hard in the post-Reconstruction South, trying to support his large family. In 1894, the family moved to the outskirts of Waxahachie, Texas still trying to make ends meet as sharecroppers. In 1901, the struggle became too much for Bessie's father, who moved to Oklahoma, a.k.a. the Indian Territory, looking for acceptance and more opportunity. Bessie's mother chose not to follow and remained in Waxahachie, working as a housekeeper and a seasonal picker. Bessie began school at the age of six in a one-room segregated schoolhouse, She walked four miles to the school and four miles home each day. Each and every year, her education would be interrupted so that Bessie could be hired out into cotton fields to pick. In spite of this, young Bessie found a love for reading and excelled in mathematics. At the age of 12, she received a scholarship to the Missionary Baptist School, and at 18, she used her meager savings to attend the Oklahoma Colored Agricultural and Normal School now known as Langston University. Bessie only managed to attend school for one term before her savings ran out, and she returned home to Waxahachie. In 1915, at the age of 23, Bessie moved north to Chicago to live with one of her brothers. There, she attended beauty college and became a manicurist. Soon after this, the U.S. entered World War I, and her brother left for the front. While in France, he learned of women aviators and of a general equality in France that was lacking in the United States. Upon returning home, he regaled his younger sister about the flying female pilot, even maybe teasing her a bit about how she would never be soaring like those women in France. Well, that brotherly ribbing put a bee in Bessie's bonnet, so to speak, and she then became determined to become the first black Native American female aviatrix. Bessie took a second job in a restaurant to try to save money in hopes to attend flight school, though none in the U.S. would admit either African Americans or women for that matter. Her story was soon picked up by the newspaper The Chicago Defender, and she received a sponsorship from both the paper and from Jesse Binga, a well-known African-American financier and the founder of the very first privately owned black bank in the U.S. In preparation for her future plans in France, Bessie began taking French lessons so that she could fill out the flight school applications and be able to converse with her instructors and fellow classmen. November of 1920, Bessie sailed to France to attend flight school. And on June 15th, 1921, Elizabeth Coleman became the very first black Native American woman to ever become a pilot. She continued to train with a French flying ace over the course of the next two months to further hone her skills, and then made the triumphant return to the United States in September of 1921. But once the initial fanfare died down, Bessie realized To make a living as a pilot, she would need to learn those daredevil skills known as barnstorming. She asked at various air shows, but no one was willing to take her on and train her. So back across the Atlantic she went, where she knew she could get the daredevil training she needed. September 3rd, 1922, at the age of 30, She made her U.S. debut at an air show honoring the 369th All-Black Infantry from World War I. Bessie, or Queen Bess as she was now known, became quite a draw and was invited to fly all over the United States. Her goal being to save enough money to buy her own plane and to one day open a flight school that would welcome all people. Her choice of career was a highly dangerous one she flew in open cockpit biplanes, most of which were Army surplus, left over from the war. She had her first close call during an LA stunt show on February 22, 1923, when her plane stalled mid stunt and crashed. She broke her leg and three ribs. Once healed, she continued on her stunt circuit, all the while promoting equality for both race and for women. She would refuse to perform at any flight show that forbid the attendance of a black audience. At one point, Queen Bess was even offered a role in a feature-length film to be produced by the African-American Seminole Film Producing Company. She accepted the role, hoping this would be a break in the financing she needed to start her own flight school. But once on set, she learned that the role she had signed on for was one that only reinforced white stereotypes of black people, and she walked off the set. And I say good for her for sticking to her principles. On April 30th, 1926, Bess was able to purchase her own plane. Her mechanic and promoter, William D. Wills, flew the plane to her in Jacksonville, Florida, from Dallas, Texas, for an air show that was to take place on the next day. Queen Bess was planning the ultimate air stunt, where she would parachute from the open cockpit of the biplane. She and Wills took the aircraft up to get the lay of the land for the next day's events, when the plane suddenly went into a nosedive and a spin at 3,000 feet. Queen Bess was thrown from the out-of-control plane and died on impact. She was only 34 years old. Wills unable to pull the plane out of its dive, crashed nearby, and also died in a fiery explosion. Though not much was left of the plane, it was determined that a wrench used to service the aircraft had become wedged in the controls, making it impossible for Wills to maintain control of the craft. Queen Bess, the Queen of the Skies flying career, was short-lived, and she never did realize the dream of opening her own flight school. Though she was a beacon of hope and a voice for equality, she was able to make a great impact on many lives in her lifetime. Funeral services were held for her in Florida, and then her body was returned to Chicago, where more than 10,000 people attended her memorials there. And that was the story of Queen Bess the Aviatrix, the first U.S. female African American and Native American pilot Side notes, and y'all, she's another story that I'm not sure why it hasn't become a movie. What a life. From Sharecropper's daughter to world-traveling stunt pilot, what an amazing story, and I hope y'all enjoyed it. I love learning about Elizabeth Coleman, and would have loved to have met her. What a brave and determined woman she was. And now on with our recommendations. What's it going to be this time? Let's do another one of my favorite podcasts, Uh, Monsters Among Us. This is actually one of the very first podcasts I ever started listening to about five years ago now, maybe a little bit more. And if you're into the paranormal, which I'm sure y'all are because y'all are listening to this podcast and y'all know I like to tell ghost stories. I think y'all will like Monsters Among Us. You might even recognize the host, Derek Hayes. He was a commentator on Paranormal caught on tape for the first several seasons but his podcast is a call-in show callers leave messages about their experiences and then Derek will do a deep dive about the call check it out it's pretty entertaining and speaking of the paranormal I probably owe y'all a spooky story don't I what do y'all want to hear about ghosts cryptids other paranormal phenomena haunted locations y'all let me know on social media just search for of the South and you'll know I also share pictures of every episode on um, both Facebook and Instagram. So, follow us there so that you can also get a visual for the stories that I tell y'all. Um, you can also email us at laurathesouth at gmail.com if you need to get in contact. And remember, y'all, we got um, Laura the South t-shirts, too. If you're interested, just email me or message me on social media and I'll get back to you about them. Also, I'm thinking about coming up with some sort of contest and maybe giving a couple of t-shirts away. What do y'all think about that? I'll be sure to give y'all further details about um, about the contest in the next episode. Maybe I'll do a special post on social media about it. Not too sure yet. And with that, before my voice completely gives out... We'll talk to y'all later on Lore of the South.